What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime podcast review that digs into true crime, pop culture, and this week, two people who want to save exotic animals and destroy each other. Will the claws come out for Joe Exotic? Also, come on, get happy. We take a look at that Filipino prison where inmates gained worldwide attention for viral dancing. It's the Netflix documentary, Happy Jail. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, and my personal body man, cantankerous Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified small cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Yes, I will stick with the small cats. Apparently, the big ones turn you crazier than <laughs> I don't even know. Batshit crazy. And the bobcats. Yeah. And the bobcats will kill you. Yeah, they will kill you. <laughs> and finally, our commissar of contrarianism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Jumbo, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a couple of things to tell you guys about. Some of them you may know about. Some of them you may not. I have obviously been laid up and taking a great deal of pain medication. And I have been taking advantage of my status, my housebound status, to do some guest stints on other podcasts. Wait, so remind us why you're on pain medicine. I had Some people might have missed an episode. I had surgery on my leg. And now I'm taking OxyContin all the time. My broken leg got repaired and poor Kevin has to deal with my addled brain, which like I literally am like 40 IQ points down. Would you say, Kevin, is that about right? Yeah. And you can't give up that much of a handicap there <laughs> in golfing, you know? I'm taking can't selfies of myself. 40, yeah. I'm so bored. I'm just watching endless episodes of Teen Mom. It's ridiculous. But I've also had some time at home to do some guest stints on podcasts So a couple things I wanted to tell you guys about. One is that I am hosting this series of the Undisclosed Addendum for the new story they have out now. 
It's a really interesting series. I suggest you check it out and not just the episodes that I am hosting, the addendum episodes. I'm really excited to do it. It's a big honor to be asked. What's the, the case? It's about a man from Tennessee. It's uh, the, the guy who was convicted for the crime is this guy named Greg Lance. But it's really interesting because the murders that he's accused of committing is this um, couple who lived in this small town in Tennessee who were murdered Americans style. The guy was a nuclear scientist from Ukraine. Uh, they were murdered and their house was burned down in like a super Americans-like situation. And this guy, uh, Lance, was convicted for it. And that was the case that when we all saw Robbie in Tennessee and she was um, in disguise uh-huh. wearing a baseball cap, that was the case she was investigating. It was funny to see Rabia, quote unquote, in disguise. It was. It was. So I'm going to be hosting the addendum. It's pretty exciting uh, for that series. Is that all you're doing now? It isn't. I just recorded, I hope it's not embargoed, I'm just going to assume it's not, an episode of the JV Club with Janet Varney, which is coming out next week, which I'm super excited to be on. Mm. I hope it's not embargoed because you tweeted about it today. I did. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very indiscreet because she's so rad. I love her so much. I just recorded some other thing that I do think is embargoed, so I can't tell you about that. And you may have heard I recorded a special episode of, and this is the thing I couldn't tell you about last time, it was killing me, a special episode of In the Dark, which is like the most exciting thing I've ever done. And I'm going to talk about that on the Patreon after show, what it was like to do that. Um, We're also going to talk about that lawsuit against the producers of S-Town on the Patreon after show uh, and Alabama's weird laws and also whether or not it's okay to get paid for journalism. And Laura Bricker is going to tell us about yet another close encounter with a criminal uh, in the Patreon after show today. And by the way, you can hear our after show by checking out our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Get the crime writers on after show there. Our book club podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast, Married with Podcast, et cetera, et cetera. It's all awesome stuff. So to kick off the show tonight, we have a little something special that we haven't done in a while. And Kevin, since your voice isn't quite back with us yet, I'm going to bring in our friend Tom to announce it for us. Last week, in an interview with the Winona Times in Winona, Uh, Mississippi, in the dark villain, District Attorney Doug Evans bluntly dismissed the Supreme Court's 7-2 decision overturning Curtis Flowers' conviction. Want to hear the quote from Doug Evans? Please. Quote, I think it was a ridiculous ruling, Evans said. They basically said there was nothing wrong with the case and reversed it anyway. I happen to have had the chance. They were ruling on the case, you <laughs> fucking idiot. How did he even he get. were ruling on jury selection. How did he even get a law degree? I, I don't know how he passed the bar. The fuck? Ah, take that curmudgeon, well, Kevin. <laughs> well, um, for a slightly more measured response to Doug Evans' quote there, I reached out to somebody who knows a little bit about what's going on in this case. My name is Madeline Barron. I'm the host of the podcast In the Dark. Which podcast is that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Madeline, I saw this tweet first from your team, and then I went and read the article. District Attorney Doug Evans said about the Supreme Court ruling, quote, I think it was a ridiculous ruling. They basically said there was nothing wrong with the case and reversed it anyway. Thoughts, Madeline right. Barron? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, this quote stood out to us because 
you know, it's absolutely not true. I mean, the Supreme Court did not basically say there was nothing wrong with the case and reversed it anyways. I mean, quite the opposite. I mean, the only reason, as you know, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, the only reason that the court would reverse anything is because there's something wrong with it. Um, And so it was interesting to us to see a little bit more from Doug Evans in this quote, because, you know, he has not said a whole lot um, since the Supreme Court ruling came out. So now he's calling it ridiculous. Now he's saying something that's not true. And of course, like the big question here still is what is he going to do next? Is he going to try this for a seventh time? And it seems like he's indicating that he will in the rest of the quotes in this article, but we're still not we're not certain of that yet. So a lot could still happen. So if he decides to move forward with the case, one thing I've been wondering about is I I know that you guys have talked about you've been taking pitches for your next season of In the Dark. You've been prepping right. uh, what you're going to be doing next. Are you going to have to cover two stories at once, potentially, with this you know relatively small team that you have? Are you going to be like doing two things? Yes. I mean, definitely at this point. I mean, we're committed to covering the story. We're not um, going to drop it. You know, we care too much about what is going on in this case to do that. So, you know, we'll just see what that ends up looking like logistically. But, yeah, we are going to be in a situation where we're going to be covering the developments in Curtis's case and then whatever we end up doing for season three. Toby, can you also not believe that Doug Evans has a law degree like Laura and our curmudgeonly friend Kevin? (laughs) Seem to be so surprised about, uh, you know, I he's just he doesn't give a shit. You know, he's just gaslighting. So I you know, what's buried there is the fact that Madeline's working on season three. And that's something we can all be excited about. That's right. <laughs> She's they're working on a season three. I'm very excited to hear what that's going to be. And of course, at the same time, they're also still reporting this case, which is super impressive. Kevin, can you imagine still working on this and also doing season three of In the Dark and also doing a special podcast episode with me. That's a lot, right? Season three is going to suck. <laughs> it's a high bar. <laughs> it's right? a high bar. I would I would just hang it up. I don't think we should even re- listen to it. <laughs> I don't think we should even listen to it. It's just... <laughs> like Beverly Sills, just like quit at their peak. Why not? <laughs> Go sell insurance, Madeline. Fuck oh, this. Season three is going to be me going down there to kick Doug Evans in the ass with my new... <laughs> shoes my new pink sneakers over my dead body (laughs) laura bricker all right let's do one more of these just a little bit closer to home this time listener tom hagee thank you once again for substituting for kevin you can take it from here all right toby you have a true crime update of some kind for us fill us in what happened to you Uh, it's actually a crime of the week update really okay yeah so i was uh like usually I drive from my job and I, I come back to my house in Durham, New Hampshire. But this is on a Friday and I was going up to the Lakes region. So I took a different route going up there. And as one does, I got stuck in traffic outside Concord. And I was just kind of minding my own business, like listening to a podcast or something. And then I, I switched lanes and I got behind a car and I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it. But then I, I glanced at its license plate. And you know what license plate it was? P before we go? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to say trial fast. Yeah. So, trial fast. Trial fast. So I thought, what would Laura Bricker do in this case? Which would be oh, to like tailgate. pull up next to her and like roll and down your window. 
and try and start asking them questions about something. But it was kind of stopping no traffic, and I thought that might be dangerous. So instead, I just followed behind and thought this will be a great update for the podcast. So it is. There you go. You're welcome. I got to know, did Pete, before we go, use her blinkers to make proper lane changes? And um, I don't think, I, you know, I, I think. And this might be what celebrity does to you. I think she was too timid to change lanes. She kind Ooh. of stayed in that same lane. Maybe she, you know, mm. didn't want to dr- get around me. Didn't want to draw attention to herself. But anyway, yeah, it's a little brush with celebrity. Yeah. Did you feel special? Did you feel like, you know, you had a story to t- for the ages to tell your grandchildren and stuff? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was that sort of like oh shit moment mm. where you're just like it's just another what? another day on the commute, and it's like oh my god, there it is. <laughs> before we go i had a little brush with celebrity this week as well Ooh, tell us i should tell you quickly yes so i met somebody that was in stranger things this week who just happens to be from exeter new hampshire really yeah so um it was a smaller part keith he was like the video store clerk and i think he was also he might have been he showed up at the end in the showdown at the mall um Mm. so Uh this guy maddie carteropel and so I was asking him, you know, he has two cats. So that that sort of made my day that he was a big cat person. So we bonded. That's pretty exciting. It was pretty exciting. He came to town oh. and um, met with some of the local kids at the high school that were in a theater class. So that here was I was cool. all excited to be on the JV club with Janet Varney. Uh-huh. But you guys had real celebrity interactions. Yeah. Actual in-person celebrity interactions. I should have checked to see if there was a cat in that car. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other That's thing it. Laura would have done. Yes. <laughs> I, I kind of like, Toby, that you're now like, what would Laura do? Exactly. That's, <laughs> that is kind of the guiding light in my life. WWLBD. Yeah. Toby, you're going to have big adventures if you follow that advice. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Well, I don't have cancer, so fuck the three of you. <laughs> That's exciting. Now that you don't have cancer, like there's nothing <laughs> more exciting I can to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been doing like a hundred percent of everything around the house. That's been exciting for me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I thought I'd have to do your podcast for you too. Does Kevin have to check to see if the dog is alive or dead now? Because you can't get yes. up to do that yourself. <laughs> yes. Well, she actually um, hurt herself earlier this week. A friend of mine, a uh, lovely friend of mine, Kara, offered to take my dogs out for a walk with her dog in, in the woods, like on the trails where we normally go, which I obviously can't do now. And poor Bridie came back with some sort of horrible, like arthritic pulled muscle situation as she couldn't walk at all. So now she and I have been laid up together on opioids on the couch. It's been pretty exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kevin has been on everything duty. And Kevin, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I, I'll tell you that like a lot of the stuff I've been trying to do this week, like keep myself not stupid on social media, but sometimes failing at that. Like you've been very supportive. I've really appreciated it. <laughs> no more duck face, Rebecca. Yeah, I can't help it. All right. Well, speaking of boring. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> Let's start the podcast, shall we? Welcome to the new Simple Provincial Detention and Rehabilitation Center, the home of the world people's Remember that viral video of inmates in a Filipino prison dancing to the song Thriller? Well, the Netflix series Happy Jail takes us there, showing us a detention center where dance numbers, family visits, and kind treatment result in high morale among the general population. Welcome to paradise. (laughs) This is life. Life of inmates. Life of CPBRC. This is the only thing special to them. 
something. I forget my problem if I'm asked. I see happy people face when, when they watch us dancing. I'm proud, I'm proud of that dance. Happy Jail follows a former inmate turned security consultant Marco Terral. As his fortunes fade, so do the fortunes of the prisoners he's overseeing. My name is uh, Marco Terral. You know, I was an inmate myself. She ran the jail assist on turf. He's the one calling the shots. Why would you hire an ex-convict? You are supposed to serve a life sentence even. Yeah, I'm not scared of you know, the inmates because I know how they, you know, how they think. I know so, my God. When he got angry, He's a wild lion. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Happy Jail. So if you want to stay spoiler free, jump to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin, I tipped my hand a little bit in the intro there to this uh, documentary. We should give a bit of a content warning, at least for me. I can't speak for everybody on the panel. Um, the beginning of this documentary, it's only five episodes. We're like, oh, it's not that much. It is slow right it is slow it is slow <laughs> look the first three episodes kind of set the scene about what life is like in this prison and a little bit about the political state of affairs on this island and the figure here in marco who is the consultant which is i guess a powerful position but an odd job description anyway it doesn't like really take off and get interesting until after the end of episode three when there's an escape and then all this stuff happens as fallout to this escape. I mean, I think they're building towards, you know, this escape. They could have taken a lot of what we learned in those three episodes and put it together in one. Or maybe taken this whole thing and made one long documentary. But it seems like it's it ended up being very repetitive and slow. And there was really no conflict in the first two or three episodes. So, Lara, the consultant, Marco, the setup here is that this is the prison where we saw the dancing inmates. This is that jail. But that's not really what it's about. That's just sort of our way in. That's like the excuse, basically, for like telling us this story is that everybody knows this place because of that. It's really about Marco, but it's also about just life inside this prison which to me that was some of the most interesting stuff in the documentary. It was sort of like like kind of orange is the new blackish, the sort of culture inside the prison and Marco himself. What did you think of him as a central character and the framing of this documentary around him? Well, I thought it was really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm watching it kind of waiting to see which direction it's going to go. And I'm like, this is either the most brilliant decision that the governor made putting this guy in charge or this is the stupidest thing they've ever done in a jail, putting this guy in charge as somebody that was a former inmate who really didn't have have, aside from having been an inmate, his background wouldn't lead you to believe that he was now going to be a supervisor in this position. But it was, you know, really fascinating to watch the culture in the jail through him and this sort of compassion that he extended to the inmates. And they, in return, seemed to have that same level of like this sort of adoration for him, like he was like God or something. But I did find myself wondering as I was watching that, you know, is this real? I mean, do these people really love this guy this much? Or is it because he's letting them deal drugs out of the place and they're like, sweet, we love this guy. So I was kind of wondering what else was I missing in the picture as, as I was watching that. Now, it becomes clear throughout the documentary that this film is happening because Marco has given the camera crew access to the jail, right? Yeah. I mean, he's in charge. Which is crazy. But Toby, it is. Uh, but Toby, at the beginning, it almost seems like, especially in episode one, there's this back and forth of 
whether or not we're supposed to see him as a good guy or a bad guy. We hear from the former governor, Norman Gwen, is that her name? Yeah. Who um, is the one who actually kind of like organized the dancing. And we don't learn until later in the documentary that her brother, who was overseeing the prison for a while, was actually a very violent and not so great guy. So at the beginning, there's this, I think, we're supposed to be thinking like, is he good or is he bad? That's interesting stuff. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was, they maintain that for about 20 minutes, maybe, until you start to <laughs> sort of understand where things are going. And then the rest of it seems like kind of a puff piece about him. I kind of agree with Laura in that I was, while I was watching, I was like, you know, I don't know how much I trust how much adulation this guy gets. And, and my thought was that maybe like these guys know that he's going to see the finished product and they, and they didn't realize at the time that he was going to resign. So I was wondering how much just sort of fear of reprisals would play into, you know, not wanting to make the guy look bad. So, cause some of the enthusiasm that people were showing seemed like pretty over the top. I handled inmate welfare development program I take care of what the inmates need, like their cases, what we can do with their cases. Like if they had a problem, they come up to me and tell me about their problem. Usually their problem is about their wife leaving them or not visiting them. With those things, you know, it's hard. So I help them with the boredom or the hopelessness they feel inside. There's an interesting thing at the beginning where you are trying to figure out like, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Because the way the governor is introduced, and she, like, quite clearly becomes a bad guy in this, but it's with her getting all this praise and, and you know, you get the sense that she was a very competent governor and the governor who, who ousted her, you initially have this sort of negative view of him. But, you know, again, it lasts some of the first episode, but then after that, it's pretty much unrelenting positive stuff, even though the corporal punishment, some of his techniques wouldn't really fly here, at least, and they seem mm. a little bit much, but they're presented in a way that makes it seem like it's necessary. And it's so much less than what the previous guy right. did, right? So it's, you know, the point of view I, I thought was a, a little bit suspicious. It was a little hard to take. He is an interesting character, and I do wonder, I guess I'll just wonder it aloud, about where does he get like all these thousands of dollars and pesos of walking around money <laughs> that he's just oh, giving out you know to the woman yeah. of the escapee and then at the end he's throwing it out of his wallet there's a lot of complaining in the beginning you know from political people about this guy we basically see him for two episodes walking around the prison smoking with a gun or you know with a, a rifle strapped over his shoulder I don't really know what he does. Mm. Yeah, and some of his like second in command type people are also inmates. <laughs> like it's a weird. Um, was... This is why I said it reminded me very much of Orange Is the New Black. It reminded me of a real life version of like inmates and guards sort of consorting together yeah. and hanging out, and like he had inmates like hanging out in his office. And there was even like a reference to the Shawshank Redemption in it where I was like, yeah, it's like that too, where the whole idea for the dancing came from that cruel uh, former consultant who had seen the Shawshank Redemption and, and seen the music scene. Wait, we don't know he was cruel. Well, we do because he says he beat up 200 men well, for like every, no reason. Well, <laughs> he says that. But aside from that, Rebecca, <laughs> well, he, he, he seemed, had a good reason to beat up that He guy. seemed That's, pretty proud of his cruelty to me. At least that was my impression Yeah, but he, he didn't, you know 
start the whole thing with the dancing. And, you know, it's funny because there does seem to be this odd esprit de corps among the inmates. And whether it's because it's dancing or whether because maybe it's we're putting on a happy face because there's a camera on us, I don't know. But um, it isn't until the end when, you you know, things go tits up (laughs) that you really see. I do believe that some of that happiness is genuine because you do get to see the sadness. I think the dancing was cruel because I don't think that Marco was making them do it the way the previous administration made them do what it. Do you, I don't know what you Like mean. the dancing we saw in the, so what we heard the old guy say, the previous guy say, was the dancing was mandatory. And, and if you see the videos, it was very regimented. Like the thriller video, for instance, was very regimented. And what we see in this documentary under Marco is a much looser kind of like voluntary dance situation. We don't see a lot of like very precise, <laughs> you know what I mean? I see happy people face when, when they watch us dancing. We give happiness to them. Sometimes we feel it feels like, wow, we're a celebrity. <laughs> they did it. The choreographer did say, like, if you're not in the dance, like, get out of here. <laughs> exactly. You know, or just or whatever. Yeah. Like just release the space. So it isn't 100 percent mandatory. Right. And he yeah. made it sound like it was mandatory before, and it became like a show for the public, which I think is problematic to like use prisoners as entertainment. They use prisoners to make furniture. That's different. License they don't plates. use prisoners to make furniture. They use them to <laughs> make license, license plates. plates in New Hampshire. But the furniture thing is voluntary, Kevin. It's a job. Yeah. Have you heard you about like the prison. prison rodeo stuff that they have at prisons? Yes. I mean, that's. Yeah. And they had like those football games with. Yeah, the rodeos are terrible, yeah. racist and terrible. Yep. It's not cool. Laura, what were you going to say about the uh, community inside the prison? So that was what I was, you know, even though it was slow, those first couple episodes, I just found it fascinating, this sort of hierarchy that they had inside the prison where, you know, you had inmates that were serving in supervisory roles, and then they were the ones delivering messages to their fellow inmates. And again, it was like, I was like, either this is really stupid, or this is really brilliant, because they were creating a different sort of culture within the jail than than I've ever seen, where they were almost self-governing to a certain extent, because you know, when they had to change the rules or do something or address some sort of issue, that message was coming from one of their peers. And I I found that very interesting. Also, why are the women and the men in the same prison? (laughs) Yeah, the female inmates had their own section of the jail. We are all only 36 female inmates in 2007. In 2014, 100 female inmates. And now there's like 200 of them in like six cells. Oh man, it's overcrowded. They're separated by a bed sheet. I was like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, I, I guess I want, not that I wanted to see any like porn scenes, but I was like, um, isn't this kind of like just problematic and a recipe for like a lot of problems? <laughs> I mean, about like what's in that prison? There was a fucking dog in the prison. <laughs> there were dogs. How did... Was the dog sentenced to something? There were, there were tarantulas in cages. Well, those I can sight, you know, they crawl in. There was a but video a game system. dog? <laughs> Somebody's got, he's got to get kibble? I mean, what the fuck? There's clearly a lot of stuff they don't show. And that show. poor guy, you're right, yeah, that, that poor guy who's like the leader of the inmates, he, with the sad face, he's like Sir Alec Guinness in the bridge over in the River Kwai. He's like, come on, guys, we're all going to have to do this. Give up your cell phones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone has one. Everyone's like, how am I going to call my wife and kids if I don't have my cell phone? 
One minute, how about you keep it, but I'm taking your charger. (laughs) Yeah, Toby, I got the feeling, too, that there were a lot of things we didn't see. I mean, we we didn't see this one ridiculous scene where Marco's like, everybody bring out your weapons and contraband. And it was clearly all fake. It was clearly everyone had the same weapon. It was like the same We've all got these like four foot sticks that we're hiding somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) But here you go. Must be great hiding places. Yeah. What did you think of what well, we probably weren't seeing, Toby? I mean, we, we did see a lot of bad stuff. I mean, the conditions were not great, obviously. There's a lot of a squalor and stuff. Like, it seems to me that when, you're, when you've got that many people, you know, at least some percentage of them are definitely criminals, in such crowded conditions, people are just on top of each other. I can't believe there's not a fair amount of violence. I mean, there is, because all these people had weapons. They were confiscating weapons. Even after that scene, when they actually do go through and are in front of the cameras doing this search, they come up with stuff. I mean, clearly, they say they don't have a problem with it. There's a drug issue because when he gets freaked out that somebody else is going to come and inspect it, it's like, okay, this is like a different situation. This isn't like, well, I'll get my my guys to tell everybody to cut it out and, and turn their stuff in. It's you know, we're going to war and that's what gets them in trouble is, is it becomes such a hard ass in that situation. So, I mean, I think clearly there's stuff that was happening that doesn't get shown in the documentary and that he tries to gloss over as long as he's sort of in control of the situation. But once the guy escapes and he's starting to worry about police from the city, I think he calls them, who, who don't have to ask his permission for stuff, then it's like, oh, shit, they could find out like what's really going on. And so we've got to do something about it quickly. I have to ask, was anyone else like as horrified as I was by that stick scene where they're like holding the people down and beating them? Oh, yeah. I was like, yeah. I can't believe they're showing this. And I'm like, and then they're yeah. like, Marco, let them show guy, it. He let them. The guy, they're like, he's gone limp. Keep beating him. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, oh, my God. The one thing I will say that I was kind of impressed by uh, in this part of the Philippines was the journalism. Like the TV news was totally on top of what was happening in the prison. Like these incidents in in the local prison that would totally not be stories in the United States. The TV news was like, Marco like discharged his firearm in the prison today. It's a problem. Like, how did they find out about that? I think Gwen. Marco told him. (laughs) I I feel like Marco was like one of those guys, if you were a journalist, he like thrived on the attention from the journalists even though he didn't like them so you you know like you'd always be going in and getting stories from him because he'd be like hey walk around hey look at this you know because he seemed just he had that type of personality so kevin can we talk about the last dance scene in the documentary uh marco comes back to glorious adulation from his former supervisees Mm. he's no longer the consultant in charge of the prison and they put on a big dance for him to the uh, Carmina Burana. Yeah, that we, I guess we're supposed to believe if they put it together in a couple of days. Yes. And by the way, I just had a flash of that guy who got the happy jail tattoo on his back. Oh, oh God. The fuck was that? Uh, there's something very odd about Marco, or, or almost, actually, almost kind of uh, mythical. And it's the idea of. The land and the king are one. You know, like King Arthur and other ones. When the king gets sick, there's drought and pestilence and things like that until the king can drink from the holy cup and, you know, he regains his health and the land regains its health. And it's like Marco has his downfall and it leads to the downfall of life inside the prison where they yeah. lose their privileges 
and then they're sad. I, I just thought like that that was kind of odd. But the dance, the fuck, they had fire eaters <laughs> and eighties. Uh, yeah, and, every, and everybody got their own set of white gloves. I mean, what the fuck was this? <laughs> they're like, well, you can't have a cell phone, but here are your white gloves. Here's here's your torch. And, and also, like, whatever happened to the escape? Oh, yeah. Like, we never see the resolution. Not of even a postscript. <laughs> the last we saw was like, they were going to dump. He gave his wife all that money. He's like, now fuck her now. She didn't help me. And I'm like, that poor woman. And what happened? We to gave the- her 15,000 pesos. She can get an Uber. Dude, 15,000 pesos is I not I thought they had to go there by boat or something. <laughs> or he was coming by boat. But, like, yeah. Also, what happened to the guy who stole Marco's TV? That was never resolved either. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of questions. A lot of questions. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Happy Jail? It is a five-part documentary on Netflix. I'm going to go around the panel and let you guys give your thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Happy Jail on Netflix? I, I'm going thumbs up because, yes, it's it's slow, but it is really fascinating. I, you know, the first couple episodes are this window into incarceration in a different part of the world that I was not familiar with this hierarchy system within the jail and the people that are there, which is really fascinating. And then you also get some kind of interesting information about like the current political scene. And then there is some drama towards the end that sort of makes it a little bit more exciting as you realize the setup was worth it for me anyway. I think it was just worth it for me to see that guy Marco shoot his gun at the happy jail thing while he had his cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> so Yeah, I have to say the graphic stuff, the way that they introduced the titles every episode was appalling and clever at the same time. It really was. <laughs> All right. Well, Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for happy jail on Netflix? Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of... I'm a little bit on the fence on this. I think you can watch the first episode and get a pretty good sense of the whole rest of the thing. So I guess I'm kind of a thumbs down. You know, if it had been, as I think Kevin was saying earlier, you know, if this had been like a two hour, just a documentary movie, actually, how long do you think it actually ends up being like three hours? You know, know. maybe an hour and a half or something, or even (laughs) like a 20 minute, you know, 60 minutes thing. I, there's there's definitely interesting stuff, but it, it just it just kind of goes on and on with no. I can only see people like filing into their prison cells and getting touched on the head so many times, and it's just like, yeah, I, I get that that's how it goes. Let's you know, you got they were counting, right? right. Yes, they were counting. Yeah, yeah okay, <laughs> but it you know, so it's just it's, it was it seemed like there was a lot of repetition. I agree. I'm a big thumbs down for this, and I don't want to be. I mean, honestly, like I want to say. This is important enough. It's a look inside of incarceration and an underrepresented part of the world in our in our pop culture and media. And I want to say it's worth watching for even for that and sort of the interesting stories the inmates there. But this, you know, I have been uh, couch bound all week and I've watched a tremendous amount of terrible contemporary reality TV. And the thing that's different between reality TV in 2019 and reality TV like in the 90s when reality TV first started ramping up. So what reality TV now is shows like Teen Mom and so forth. It's just a lot of people sitting around a room staring at their cell phones, not talking to each other. And that's the whole show. That's what this reminded me of. Like we just watched a whole lot of people doing nothing. Yes, there were two ways. Yes, there were, you know, occasional scenes where something would actually happen. But then there was just a tremendous amount of filler of people doing 
nothing. I found it stultifying. I fell asleep in three of the five episodes we watched. Huge thumbs down for me. Disappointing all around. What about you, Kevin? I'm also a thumbs down. Certainly as a, uh, a complete work of art, I don't recommend it. I guess if you watched episode one and jumped to four and five, I'll keep it spoiler free, but I think that you might have a, a better experience than throwing in an extra hour and a half to find out a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, it's not a deep look at, you know, the criminal justice system in the Philippines or anything like that, or an interesting character profile. But again, I just don't think that happy jail is a necessarily a, a happy watch. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess. So IKEA makes storage affordable. Moving on. Tell me his name now. I'll put him six feet underground. My question is, is Carol Baskin really this powerful? He's not the problem. Turn that guy around. You really got to call me back. He was actually talking about paying someone to kill you. Wonderies Over My Dead Body returns for a second season with the story of Joe Exotic. Host Rob Moore introduces us to the charismatic and controversial exotic animal collector who claims to be a target for violence and arson at the hands of a woman whose husband vanished under mysterious circumstances. This dumb bee down in Florida. Some bitch down in Florida. He would just always call her names like that crazy bitch, that hateful bitch. It was always something bitch. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin down there in Tampa, Florida. She's a sick bitch. <laughs> Joe Exotic's nemesis is Carol Baskin, a fellow big cat lover of different stripes, who highlights Joe's mistreatment and exploitation of his tigers. What began as an effort to protect animals turns personal and financially devastating, making an already unpredictable Joe even more volatile. Carol Baskin, better never, ever, ever see me face to face. Ever, ever, ever. Over My Dead Body, Joe Exotic shows that, when cornered, 
People can be just as dangerous as wild animals. Grr, baby. We are going to be talking about plot points for Over My Dead Body, Joe Exotic, through episode five. So for our spoiler-free review of this podcast, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Toby. Rebecca. You wrote me an awesome note. You said, quote, I love anything about feuds within subcultures. Talk about that, please. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I love documentaries and podcasts about subcultures. And the thing that makes them even better is when there's a feud because it's so, these things seem so all consuming for the people who are involved in them. But it's just such a small, like the exotic animal world. Like, I don't know how many people are involved in that. And it's so interesting that in these very small communities, these kind of rivalries, which just seem to take on these epic proportions way out of, I'm about to say proportion again, twice in one sentence, but way out of proportion to actually what is going on. They overreact? Uh, just a <laughs> tiny bit. So you got that, and then you throw in, like, people own, like, 100 tigers each for some reason, and it's just, it's very... It's very weird. Anyway, as soon as I like kind of understood what the basics were, I was like, okay, this is like, this is hitting my sweet spot. Well, I will say, I do want to just do one disclaimer about this podcast for anyone who hasn't listened to it. One thing that's very difficult for me about listening to this, and I'm sure for other people who've listened to it, is there are a lot of, we don't hear it, but we hear about a lot of animal cruelty and neglect in this podcast. And that, because that's difficult. It's a difficult listen because Joe's practices are not above board. And I will just say uh, the breeding of wild animals for the purposes of entertainment and interacting with human beings is a bad practice. It's frowned upon by people who love animals. And I just want to say that out loud because if we didn't, I know we'll get email about it. That's mm -hmm. how we all feel. And we're just talking about the podcast here. But there are some scenes here that are, are difficult. Uh, now, that being said, Lara Bricker, our very own crazy cat lady, yes. this takes it to a whole new level, <laughs> does it not? <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, I'm a crazy cat lady with my three cats. These people are off their fucking rocker. I'm like, like who <laughs> takes bobcats in their house are you out of your mind i mean i understand she wanted to but when they were describing the scene of carol having these bobcats in her house like peeing all over the place climbing over her workspace i'm like who are these people carol and don bought 56 cats that day they immediately started outfitting their house inside and out with cages. We built a cage around my desk so that I could at least work the real estate business from my home and not have the cats peeing on the tax machine and <laughs> everything else. That was what was so fascinating about this was just like this whole subculture of the exotic animal, either sanctuary or shows or what trade. Yeah, trade world. It was just bonkers. And that's what really sucked me in on this was just like, you know, I'm like waiting, like, okay, is somebody going to die in this? And I'm like, well, eventually maybe, but... It's, what's the name of the... Th Over my dead body. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so where is a dead person? But I'm like, well, this whole thing is just so bizarre. I'm just going to keep listening to see what happens next. So, Kevin, we get set up with this, like, this sort of central conflict here is this rivalry between these two people, Joe yeah. and Carol, right? Yep. And basically, Joe's pissed because Carol has become like an animal rights advocate and she's trying to take down what he's doing, which is bad and unethical. We hear tape of these poor tiger cubs being brought to malls and all this bullshit. Mm -hmm. But she's not without her own weirdness 
We get introduced to her the very first time we sort of meet her as a character. We hear a scene where she's in a fight with a, an abusive husband. Oh, yes. Keep going. She goes for a walk out of the house to get away from him because he threw a potato at her. Yes. Carol found herself walking barefoot in a rough part of town. Tall and blonde with huge blue eyes. She stood out. Men in cars began circling the block to check her out. I was very attractive, which attracted all of the wrong kind of attention. She meets a man who picks her up in a car. He immediately wraps his hands around her throat. Yes. And says, you know, I could snap your neck. And she thinks, oh, this should be my next boyfriend. (laughs) And so we went to one of those little motels where it's mostly overnight guests that are either truckers or prostitutes and that sort of thing. Carol was sure he would try to put the moves on her. But instead, he just fished out an old pair of pajamas and handed them to her. He held good to his word not to touch me, and it was the first time that any man had done something for me and not expected something in return. And I fell in love with him right then and there. That's how we meet her. And then, of course, later we find out that she in a hilarious meta nod to Wondery, says, it was only when I listened to the podcast Dirty John that I realized all the men in my life were Dirty Johns. Oh, my God. So we also hear this arc of her. She starts as a collector, somebody who's buying way too many of these exotic animals and opens a like zoo place where people can interact with them. That's not good. And she later kind of comes around and, and realizes this is all bad and she becomes like a sanctuary person, marries this nice guy. So she's not exactly an uncomplicated nemesis for Joe, right? No, and that doesn't even get into the background of her missing husband. Yes! Well, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking that this is where the story is going. Yeah. And it doesn't. It's just an incredibly interesting side note to their, their tale. But it's her husband who, apparently when they first started having an affair, he used a fake name. He didn't want her knowing that he was rich. Yeah. And who comes and says to his secretary... Here's an envelope. If something should happen to me... Open it. Open it. And she puts it in her purse and forgets about it. Let me tell you this right now, any of you. Because he immediately disappears. If you hand me an envelope, any of you, and you say to me, don't open this unless something happens to me, the minute you fucking walk out the door, I'm opening that envelope. I just want to tell you all that right now. I might open it right in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck you got in here? Better be the passwords to your social media. You know what this reminded me of a lot, Kevin? It reminded me a lot of, and I don't want to like go into a rabbit hole of something that our listeners won't have read. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of all the crazy characters in one of the books we wrote, Legally Dead. Yeah. You yeah. sort of have these like huge personalities, these crazy animal people with like animals just everywhere, oh, yeah. pissing and shitting everywhere. In that beautiful <laughs> like, house that they lived in across the river from me. Yeah, with, yeah. Like, so they had the Italian marble or something in the, yeah. yeah. Kevin, yeah, so these are so not- So buy that book to find out that story. <laughs> it's called Legally Dead. But Kevin, these are not, nor- I mean, so I guess what I'm no, saying to you is they're no. not normal people with normal backstories. Somebody who would buy 56 big cats on a whim, neither of them apparently- have any formal experience or training or study in uh, animal husbandry or uh, how to take care of these? You know, I don't know. It's so odd. So, you know, two odd people are going to, you know, bump heads and this is where we go. Toby, where do you put the characters in this story on sort of the scale of sympatheticness? 
given all that all the information that we are told about Joe, uh, later his partner Jeff, you know, like warehousing a bunch of cats, like in a warehouse, warehouse literally. Yeah. Carol, uh, her missing husband, who she may or may not have had a part in making gone missing. I personally don't think she did, but that's just me. Who knows? How do you rank when you sort of have this kind of feud? Are we supposed to, as an audience? rank them in sort of layers of like we feel worse for this one than we do for this one like this is the hero this is the villain what do you think like who are you rooting for exactly yeah i don't know i mean i don't think any of them are particularly likable i think carol just because she's under threat of being killed i guess probably gets the most sympathy but you know she really has sort of devoted her life to destroying joe's life but it's just hard to feel too bad about that because there's like a reason why she wants to destroy his business because his business sucks. Yeah, he's not a good guy. And then Jeff, I think, is probably the worst of them all. I I can't really wrap my head around the idea that I want to own a bunch of big cats. Once you have like five, it's like 15, three times better than having five. I don't don't understand why Mm. you need a whole bunch of big cats. And then the idea that you just put them in a warehouse just so like you just own them and can go in and look at them. I, I don't get it at all. So I guarantee you we have one listener that is like 50 big cats. Just well, we we also know. But Jeff is a bad guy because he's basically using these cats to breed and he's taking them in a Louis Vuitton purse to Vegas to let rich rich people people pet them, them, which is disgusting. It's just bizarre. I mean, the, the whole thing, this kind of stuff just seems so clearly like out of bounds that I think you have to start off with kind of a skewed attitude to even start doing this kind of stuff. Like, I don't know why you would think breeding tigers to, like, sell the people to live in, like, someplace in America. Why is that a good idea? I don't I don't get it. I'm not super sympathetic to any of them, but I guess if it had to be one, it would be Carol. Let's talk about how this podcast begins in the opening scene of a polyamorous wedding <laughs> with attendants that are primates. There was several people there with different kinds of monkeys. They were, for the most part, in their strollers or on their mom's lap or in their shirt. Jacqueline Thompson was among the guests. She watched as three men in matching hot pink cowboy shirts and black jeans walk to the front of the hall. Today we have gathered to witness the union of Travis, John, and Joe. And it's the least interesting part of the entire story. Which I actually love. I do love it that sort of Joe's sexual orientation and being polyamorous and gay and all that stuff, that they don't make a big deal out of it, that it is the least interesting part of the story. Like, that's what make you're supposed to do. a bigger deal about do. his mullet. Yes, his mullet to me is a bigger deal, a much bigger have deal. Have you looked at it? <laughs> uh, I have. I, have you watched his YouTube channel? I looked it up and I was just no. like, oh, good God, what is this? But I do want to talk about something else stylistic about this uh, is that the host, Rob Moore, is so like he goes and lives in the zoo, basically, literally. Mm -hmm. He reports this very straight. The writing is very straight. It's not sensationalized. He's very much writing it like a straight reported story. And one of the interesting things I heard in the credits is that Josh Block is the story editor. You guys might remember Josh Block is the CBC reporter who did Uncover Escaping Nexium. At the same time, the story's bananas is a very sort of measured delivery and a lot of due diligence, tons of sources. Right, Laura? Yeah, I think that's the thing that really stood out for me about this podcast is, you know, it is told in that way. And I think when you have a story that's just this bananas, you don't need to tell it in any sensational way. You just 
lay the facts out there because the story really tells itself. But they had access to everybody, it seemed like, who was involved in this story. And it it seemed like from the way that you're hearing the interviews, both with Joe and with Carol, and even the poor guy whose arm got bitten off, um, that poor guy. But, um, you know, everybody... The hitman? We even have the hitman. But they were all so forthcoming. So I think that's like a real credit to the way that he's a journalist, the way that he approached it, that he was able to get everybody to cooperate and do interviews. So you really got a full picture of both sides of the story in terms of where both of these people were coming from with their grievances uh, against each other. First, I'm like, I can't believe that these people are so honest about like, that just the stories that they were telling. I'm like, I I don't know if I, you know, but I I think that's what (laughs) I liked about this is that it wasn't, I, I didn't really feel too much sympathy for either side, but I think the way that it was written and the way that the interviews were done, let you come to your own conclusions. Toby, this is something that I was texting about with you today, too, is that I think our expectations going into this with the cover art, (laughs) and I don't remember us particularly loving the first season of Over My Dead Body, and, you know, we have been critical of some other Wondery shows. I think our expectations were that it would be more sensational, and we were texting today about how it's actually kind of well done for as bananas as the story is, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would have been really easy to make this super lowbrow. You listen to it and it seems like a novel kind of because uh, it's just so full of characters. and Yes, it could be like a, like a John Irving novel or something like that. It has this pretty good story arc and people have got these weird backstories and, you know, you've got these like weird little characters sort of drifting in and out and I mean, I think there's a little bit, it's not really a nod to it, but I think you can pick up on when the guy who like spends like a whole lot of time there thinking he's going to be able to turn this into like an awesome reality show. But then it turns out that people think Joe's a little too sketchy. Because he is. Right. No, he totally is. But it's just interesting that this guy identified Joe as like, this could be like the next whatever. On one particularly busy day at the zoo, Rick was filming a tour He was sitting behind about a hundred visitors when he spotted a tiger. It had gotten loose. It was slinking around just 20 feet from the crowd and getting closer. Rick signaled one of the animal trainers who eventually lured it into a cage with a piece of meat, somehow unnoticed. Later, Joe came to Rick in the studio. Joe said, grab your camera, Rick, let's go. And I go with him, and he goes out. He says, you know, I need more space anyway, and this tiger's caused me enough problems. Pulled the gun off his hip, shot the damn tiger right in the head. He said, that'll teach him mess with me. I did think that was a really kind of fun look into what a producer like that thinks right. when they meet a character like this. Like, the guy said, I'm eschewing all of my journalistic ethics here. Like, this person is crazy, except he could be a good TV star. So... I invested all this time and all this money to be here. And ultimately, like, he burned all my shit down, like, literally. Even if you do a documentary, you know, it's like all these, like, cubs with diarrhea and, and you oh, know, that diaper rash and, you know, sick animals in the background and all this stuff. I mean, it, was, it, it just sounds... Well, that's 
you know, as I was listening to this, and there was a lot of horrible descriptions of things that happen to animals. Oh, he killed so many of them for no reason. I guess as I was listening to this, I'm like, so I know that Carol has been like beating the drum and trying to get, you know, him investigated and trying to shut him down. But this stuff was so brazen and so blatant and so bad. Like, I mean, you did not have to be an animal rights expert to know that this is horrendous. Like, how did this go on as long as it did? Was it just that like authorities are intimidated by taking on something of this magnitude. So unless there's something like super egregious in public, they're just going to be like, well, we can't really do anything. I mean, I I don't know. I just wonder how it went on as long as it did. It's actually pretty common, these big exotic animal collectors in different states. In some certain states where the laws are more lax, it's super common. I've seen photos of like loose lions like running around like Detroit and stuff because people had like these backyard zoos. It's weirdly, weirdly common. I want to know how he found so many hitmen i mean he seemed to find like not just like Jeez, yeah. one hitman but like there was like multiple hitman available for hire like i i, I guess again I, I lead a sheltered life but uh, i was like huh okay <laughs> his entourage is pretty sketchy yeah. yes it he, is if he just had a little more chill you know to be surrounded by all these uh you know, these exotic animals and hitmen, he'd be like a really good Bond villain. <laughs> but he's just too fucking wound up. Yeah, Toby wrote a note to me that says, um, he seems to embody a certain corner of our culture that thrives on dysfunction, seediness, and delusions of grandeur slash narcissism. Sounds about right. <laughs> it's like yeah. Abby Lee Miller on Dance Moms. I'm sorry, I have been watching a tremendous amount of reality TV <laughs> this week. <laughs> You would watch the Joe Exotic show. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if I would watch that, but I would certainly go by it and perhaps pause for a moment before moving on. Kevin, I have a question for you. Yeah. If you were riding your bike to work. Yes. And. Okay, we're already in the fantasy world, but go ahead. <laughs> you saw what you knew to be a hitman get out of a car <laughs> and come running at you. The passenger door opens and this guy leaps out of the car and i mean this guy looked like a thug right out of central casting a big man wearing dark sunglasses a sleeveless shirt and chains around his neck and he's coming straight for me carol frantically pedaled away would you just turn around and pedal really 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 fast to hope that you could get away from said hitman um i think my my best chance is to fall down and curl up in a ball <laughs> because I would try to like get away fast and I would probably last about 15 seconds before I hyperventilated. <laughs> I actually did want to ask you one question about the writing, Kevin, and see if yeah. you noticed something. Did you notice that Rob Moore in his narration always explains what people look like and what they were wearing in almost every scene? And he's very consistent as with both men and women. I did not notice that. No, I did notice that the writing was very strong. Mm. I believe that he is a magazine writer. And I think this originally appeared in the New Yorker or I don't know if it originally appeared in the New Yorker, but there's a New Yorker magazine article about it. You know, he certainly brings his strengths as a writer into the podcast, which it doesn't always happen with the talent in podcasts that they are able to transition or or that they're able to tell the story in an audio version that remains appealing. He's got a very strong voice. He's got good writing chops. The sound that in the production level is excellent, of course. It's Wondry. 
So, uh, you know, I think all around, it's a very strong package. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Over My Dead Body, Joe Exotic from Wondery? Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down take on this podcast. Toby Ball, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down on Over My Dead Body, colon, Joe Exotic. Uh, Yeah, definitely a thumbs up. I was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. It's a crazy story. It's told in a way that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable listening to it, I guess. And uh, I think it's well reported. I kept waiting to like start not liking it, and it never happened. I was totally psyched to listen to the next episode. So big thumbs up. Laura Bricker, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Over My Dead Body, colon, Joe Exotic. I'm also a thumbs up. It was just a really bizarre story. And the cast of characters, I'm like, are these people real? Uh, as I'm listening to this, because it was just a world that I was not familiar with. It was a hard listen. I did not like listening to a lot of the animal cruelty descriptions and things that happened to some of the animals. So that part was definitely difficult. But I think uh, if you stick with it, I only listened through episode five, I'm suspecting by episode six, we will feel vindicated and uh, the right thing will happen. Yeah, I'm really surprised too at how much I enjoyed um, Over My Dead Body, colon, Joe Exotic. I think the story is thoroughly reported. It's clean. The writing is strong. The sound design is good. I really like the style of our narrator and of the editing. I This is one of those instances where we talk about it a lot in podcasts we criticize that clearly the absence of editing is felt. You can feel the editing happening here. Like that whole episode about the side story that we hear, a worse podcast would have made that protracted and like several arc episodes. And the fact that they were able to limit it to one uh, neatly and cleanly sort of shows the strength of the editing here. So yeah, I I like this podcast. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? I am also a thumbs up. I think that Wondery always comes up with really interesting concepts for series. Uh, This one, I think season two of Over My Dead Body, much stronger than season one. It's a good tale. Great job by the, uh, the journalist host, the ability to get a lot of good interviews and to move the story forward. Uh, I am looking forward to the final episode. I have to admit, I did uh, peek on the internet to find out where this goes, and I spoiled myself, but I still want to listen to the final episode, how they wrap it all up. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. Of the week. Speaking of wild animal attacks, an elderly Australian woman is dead after being pecked by what's described as, quote, an aggressive rooster. (laughs) Officials said it happened while the woman was collecting eggs from her chicken coop. She collapsed after her rooster pecked her on her bare calf. Even though it was just two pecks, the bird lacerated a varicose vein, causing the elderly woman to bleed out. Jesus. Officials in Australia are stressing the rooster attacks are very, very rare. Instead, they're using the story as a cautionary tale for senior citizens on the dangers of varicose veins. All right. Uh, So, panel, here's my question for you. This rooster will not face charges for his foul play. Mm. What was his motive in this pecking attack? Toby Ball, what do you think? 
I'm supposed to put myself in the mind of a rooster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe she went and got one of those delicious new chicken sandwiches at Popeye's. Yeah. Set them off. Yep. Yep. That's it. <laughs> what about you, Lara Bricker? What do you think was the motive in this pecking attack by this rooster? I think that old lady was trying to liberate the rooster's harem. <laughs> I, I think that was it. She wasn't really picking up eggs. She was sending them messages of how to escape from his ways. Because clearly he had anger management issues. Uh, I think the rooster heard the old lady say, uh, I think the Supreme Court ruling in the Curtis Flowers case was ridiculous. They basically said there was nothing wrong and reversed it anyway. And the rooster just couldn't take it. What about you, Kevin Flynn? No, the rooster didn't do it. It was an owl. (laughs) Very good. good. Uh, We should probably end the podcast on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Yes, we're back to cats this week because after that podcast, the trauma of all the animals, I needed some cute, cuddly kittens. So one of our regular listeners, Susan Kozier, uh, sent these lovely pictures of her little kittens. It was kind of sad start because her daughter's cat had run away. But, you know, they, they moved on, much like I did when poor little Stampy died, and got two four-week-old kittens. The black one is named Stepstool because the gray one, Normal, climbs all over her. They are so cute. Wow. I, they are very cute. Well, they always are, Laura Bricker. Almost always, I might anyway. need some more kittens. Oh, <laughs> no, you don't need any more kittens. Please. Please don't get any <laughs> more kittens. All right, Laura Bricker, people want to send to you their cats or dogs or other sundry animals to be cat slash pet of the week. How can they find you online? At Laura Bricker on Twitter. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you they also love feuds within super pocket subcultures. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter and help you be a little bit less curmudgeonly, how can they find you online? Uh, they can get a hold of me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and you should join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll get our Crime Writers on After Show right now. You'll also get all the other extra podcasts we make. It's awesome. Our theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, but not in Studio C, the closet in our basement where we keep our liger. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. You can manipulate my voice and having me say anything you want on your podcast. You guys are the only people I would trust to do that. Um, we have all the words now. We can do it. <laughs> it's like, like secretly all we've been trying to do is get you to say all of the words that we want to do something else. And then behind it, you'll be like, bong, bong, bong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you'll, you'll get what you want, but not how you wanted it. <laughs> What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. 
Available starting early 2024. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. Cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution.